John chapter 8, 56 through 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your precious word. God, today we need you to open it up to us. We need you to reveal the truths that are at the surface and buried deep in this word of yours. I ask for your anointing to be able to preach this word in the power of your spirit. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice, Lord. And cause us not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of it by your grace and your power. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing on Route 66 and we're going through the Gospels. This is the last Gospel and for centuries, the Gospels have been depicted by characteristic images, and a lot of people don't know that. But here they are. What we find is that the Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jews, and the focus was that Jesus is our King, the King of the Jews. And so that's symbolized by a lion. Mark is a Gospel to the Romans. They were people who did, you know, they, they were people that were doers. And so we see there reflected in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is our suffering servant. And so that's pictured by an ox. Luke is to the Greeks, to Theophilus, who is a Greek, and that focuses on the Son of Man or Christ's humanity. I remember Luke was a doctor. And so the image for that is a man. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels because they're similar in order, chronology, and language. And then we come to the outlier, John. John is written to all who will believe, and the focus is on the Son of God, Christ's deity. And the image there is the eagle. The reason they choose the the image of the eagle, apparently it's twofold. One is that it's believed that the eagle is the only creature that can stare directly into the sun, and the other one was that the eagle would come down. So this is a picture of the Gospel of John. It's interesting because when you look at prophetic words in the Old Testament and New Testament, Ezekiel 1.10 says, As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. And then also in Revelation 4, 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So whether that's where they got the characteristics or not, that's that's what we have and we're all tied together together. in that. Now, my main focus for the Gospel of John is this. This is where I'm coming from, is that we are called in the Gospel of John to believe in and trust Jesus because he was, is, and always will be the sovereign God. It sounds so simple. We say, well, yeah, so the whole message is on that. Because so many times we know that, but do we really live like that? Uh, let's talk about this Gospel of John. John is the author. Uh, somewhere around 85 to 95 A.D., and it was composed after the, the other three Gospels. 
Now, there's speculation uh, that John most likely knew about these other Gospels and he did not feel the need to duplicate what they had written. So what you find in John is this, that 92% of the Gospel of John is material only found in the Gospel of John. Very unique. So when we look at this, we see here are some of the things that are unique to John. Jesus' first miracle of turning the water into wine, the story of Nicodemus and the woman at the well, the lame man by the pool of Bethsaida, uh, the man born blind, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, washing the disciples' feet, the teaching in the upper room where he gives the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus' longest prayer, the high priestly prayer, and also doubting Thomas and all his struggles. What John omits is Jesus' birth, his boyhood, temptation in the desert, the transfiguration, the calling of the disciples. He doesn't have any parables in John, but he does have analogies. And uh, the ascension is not in there, nor is the Great Commission. So what we see here is that this is the Gospel of John. Now, who is this guy? Well, he's one of what the Scriptures call the sons of thunder. He was, his brother was James the disciple. Uh, his mom, John's mom, was probably Jesus' mom's sister. Uh, we also know that John was a follower of John the Baptist when Jesus called him, and uh, when Jesus called him, John was probably about 25 years old. Uh, scholars believe he was the youngest of all the disciples. And John was part of the inner circle. Of Jesus. So Jesus had the 12 disciples, and then there were the three guys that were really close to him. You know, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, you three come with me. And that was James, John, and Peter. And when you look at that, he was part of that. But of the three, what we would call Jesus' BFF, Jesus' best friend, would be John. He's the clo- he was the one that was closest. There were unique things that, that we see in Scripture where John was particularly close to Jesus. And because of that, he had a more thorough and complete understanding of Jesus. And that's why, for me personally, whenever I hand a Bible to someone, I will automatically go to the Gospel of John, and I will fold over the, first, uh, the corner to the first page and say this, if you were to pass on, and I wanted to know more about you, but you were gone, obviously, I would talk to your best friend because they would have the most unique understanding of you. Who would that be? And they'd say it, and I'd say, well, Jesus, uh, for John was Jesus, what we would call best friend. And so if you want to really get a unique insight into who Jesus is, start reading here in the book of John. And it's considered the most intimate gospel because of that. But here's just a few verses with regards to John. John 13, 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table close to Jesus. We're talking about that intimacy there. John 19, 26-27, when Jesus saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus was taking care of the oldest son's responsibility to take care of his mom. He knew he was passing on, and he entrusted his mom to his close friend John. John was the only disciple at the foot of the cross. And then we see in John 21, 24 through 25, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He's saying, this is true. What I'm telling you is true. He's writing almost in a third person. Now there, was all, there are also many other things that Jesus did where every, one of them, where every one of them could be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
So John was the closest. That's why this is, is considered the most intimate of the four Gospels because it contains what appears to be private conversations that Jesus had with John. There's just some intimacy about this particular book. And John was present at all the events that he's recording. Unlike the book of Mark, where Mark is, talk, is, is recording what Peter was saying, basically, John was there. He was at the foot of the cross. He was the first one to the tomb. Uh, John is, is giving that first-person testimony. And as a matter of fact, when you look at this book, the last nine chapters, okay, 40% of the Gospel of John is addressing the final week of Jesus' earthly life. 40%, the last week when Jesus is on earth. Very, very interesting. And here's the thing. John saw some incredible things. He says, suppose the world, you know, if every one of them were to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John saw some incredible things. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw miracle after miracle. He sat under Jesus' teaching. He heard the wisdom of Christ. He saw some things that we can't even know about. But even with that, it still must have been a great leap of faith to go from thinking, you know what? Here's Jesus, this is the man Jesus, who this is my Lord and my God. You ever think about that? Like I think, when was it that God opened up John's heart to believe that Jesus truly was God in the flesh? You know, I... Imagine you're, you're, you just got done having lunch with the disciples and you cleaned up the dishes and everything and you're laying down and you're sleeping and you wake up and you're John and you look over and you think, is this really God in the flesh? I mean, that's... I, I wonder, I, I, I thought about that for myself. I thought, when was that time that I, by God's grace, believed that Jesus was fully God and fully man? And I was raised in a religious home, so uh, we were taught that you were saved if your good works outweighed your bad. But from a very young child, I was taught that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and that he was fully God, and that he lived the perfect sinless life, and that he died on the cross uh, for my sins. So I can't remember, because it's so far back, maybe some of you who maybe got saved later in life can remember that time where all of a sudden the revelation of Jesus being fully God and fully man hit you impacted you, and you go, yeah, I see. But what happened is this, is that whatever occurred, John saw so much evidence, so much that was overwhelming and convincing that in every chapter of the Gospel of John, we see the deity of, this, of Christ displayed. In every chapter. That's the focus of this gospel. Christ's deity. That he was fully God. And that's why it's interesting because when John begins his gospel, he introduces it, he starts out with the genealogy, but he doesn't start with Jesus was born on this day or that he was in a... Uh, his, he, he goes all the way back like the one gospel to Abraham... Instead, he goes beyond creation. He goes before time to lay out Jesus' genealogy in a sense. What he does is he goes before 
creation to our triune God. Take a look at God's Word. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. And then Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created, that's the plural form, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And finally, Matthew 28.19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You may have life in his name. What we see is this, that Jesus always was. He was never created and he never came into being. He is our triune God. He is our triune God. He is not a God, like the Jehovah Witnesses believe, one of many. Nor, as modalism says, he's not one God who acts like the Father in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament and the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. As a matter of fact, some scholars believe that John may have been addressing a first century heresy that believed this, that the Christ Spirit came upon Jesus at his, birth, at his baptism and left him at the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, I was at a church one time where a guy was preaching that. I couldn't believe it, coming from a pulpit. But what we know, what is true about God is this. This is the best way I can describe what it means that we have a triune God. That God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. Each is fully God, and yet he is not three gods, but one God. Say, well, how do I get my head around that? Good luck. Good luck with that. Again, I, I can choose to either believe uh, God's word or what I think or what I feel, but I can't even understand the fact, and I've said this so many times, but I'll say it again. I can't even understand the fact that right now I am speaking and moving and functioning primarily because of electrical impulses in a nine-pound piece of meat in my head. So if you can, if you can figure that all out... Uh, then you could, you know, who knows? But <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? There's mysteries. And if I'm going to default, I'm going to default towards faith rather than man's understanding. And we have a triune God. And, and what we have to do is as we read God's word, we've said this before, you have to read it in context. You have to read it like you were listening with the ears of a Hebrew, Okay. And so what happens is is this, is that to a Hebrew there is no distinction, there are no lesser attributes when it comes between God the Father and God the Son. See, that's an argument that people make. Well, Jesus was a lesser God because, you know, you got God the Father and you got Jesus the Son, so he's a lesser God. And when you read it, you go, boy, that sounds like a great intellectual argument. The problem is that that's not how a Jewish person heard it. That's not how people back then heard it. They heard it like such, that there is no difference between them. It is the same. Son of God, God, it's, it's God. Okay? And that's why, even to this day, 
A Jewish person will never speak of God directly as being his father because they equate it to saying, I am God. That's why they don't say, they, they, they don't say that directly. Yet Jesus in John alone says 35 times he's talking about the father and I am his son or you know, talking about that relationship 35 times. Take a look. Chapter 8, 54, which is just a few verses before the verses we read. So look at this kind of setting things up. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Wow, that's quite the statement. Then John ten thirty six, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. Blaspheming, well, because he's saying he's equal with God. And then Colossians 2, 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see, even though I can't understand it, I can read this and understand what this is saying in Colossians. It's saying that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And how that all works, I don't understand. Just like I don't understand the Trinity. But it's true. And it says that, so I have a choice to make, to believe the Word of God by faith or take man's arguments and compare them against the wisdom of the infinite God. And so Jesus was somehow miraculously fully God and fully man. And yes, it takes faith to believe that. But I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. He presents this. And what happens is the Jews recognized that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God And that was a claim to be equal with God. So what did Jesus do in response to this claim in 54? He shut up, right? He let him read between the lines. Not Jesus. Nah, uh uh-uh. Nope. Instead, what Jesus does is he went beyond this indirect claim and he declared, without a doubt, I'm God. Take a look. This is a section of scripture we read. John 8:56. So continuing on, it just said, "So you call us blasphemy? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad." So the Jews said to him, "You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Abraham died like 2,000 years before this." So, so the Jews are basically challenging Jesus' math. They say, "Come on, Jesus! Abraham died 2,000 years ago, and you're trying to say that he saw you?" So you date? That's ridiculous. You're not even 50 years old, Jesus. That's their argument. Because they, they didn't understand. And Jesus was about to open up their eyes. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Look at, look at this next line, 59. Whatever Jesus said in a Jewish mind was so out there was so blasphemous that they broke their own law. There was no judgment. There was no nothing. Look at what they did. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They were going to kill him immediately. No trial, no nothing, because what he just said is way beyond. He went way over the edge to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What was Jesus doing in a Jewish mind that was so vile to them that they were going to immediately kill him without any kind of trial? Because he was saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. That's what he was saying, and they knew it. 
They understood it. Look at this, Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You see, they got it. Jesus was saying, That God of the Old Testament that stood at the burning bush with Moses, that was me. And they cried, Blasphemy. No way. No way. He applied the holy name of God given to Moses at the burning bush to himself. And that spontaneously caused them to attack and curse the very God they claimed they served. And you know what? Things haven't changed a whole lot, have they? Because today, the doctrine of Jesus' deity is one of the most assailed doctrines in all of Christianity. And you know why? Because without the deity of Christ, there is no atonement. There's no atonement. What it would be based on is man's works, because Jesus was just a man, right? And he somehow lived the law perfectly, right? And so, in doing so, it's possible for anybody to do that. Man can't do that. The Bible clearly says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only, only a God-man could do that. Only, only Jesus could do that. He lived the perfect, sinless life. God in the flesh came down, born of a virgin. As I said, you know, people think that they can remove certain parts of Christianity. Remove the virgin birth. Remove the deity of Christ and Christianity still stands. Our foundation of our faith is based on those truths. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He lived that perfect sinless life because only God could do that, man couldn't. And then he went to the cross and was pay, paid the penalty for the sin of all who would believe. Who, what, what man can withstand the wrath of the living God poured out upon him? Who can do, no, nobody can do that. Nobody can do that. And we see that as a picture of what Christ has done, that because of who he is, fully God and fully man, the atonement has eternal consequences. Eternal, because of who Jesus is, the focus of the Gospel of John. You see, John had a purpose in this Gospel. He had a purpose, and that purpose was he wanted to persuade people that you must believe in Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus and Jesus alone. Take a look at God's Word. John lays it out right here. John 20, 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He's saying there was a whole lot more. <clears throat> but these are written. The Gospel of John was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He is fully God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. 
I'm writing this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is fully God and that he is fully man. And by believing in him, you would have eternal life. There's the reason for the Gospel of John. He, he tells us it himself. That you might believe, you might see the glory of God in the Gospel, displayed in the Gospel of John. And then John 5:24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Last week I had the privilege of <clears throat> teaching the Sunday school class here on uh, how to study the Bible. And we had talked about certain things that we try to teach. A lot of them people don't realize is from the pulpit. And one of the things that we ask people to do is what are some of the things you've heard that help you in your Bible study? And one of the statements was is that we try to teach you to look for words that are continually repeated in a certain area of Scripture or in a certain book. And this word believe is in John. Uh, it's incredible. It's a key word in the Gospel of John because a form of the word believe is used over 98 times in the Gospel of John. 98 times. And what's interesting is this. When you look at how it's used, it's very intriguing because he uses the present tense verb but never the noun. Present tense verb but never the noun. Here's why. Because he's trying to show... That active belief in the Son of God is not just intellectual knowledge of facts. I struggled with this sermon because there was a lot of facts. So then people come here, they gather the facts, they go, oh, okay, that's great. John, 40% of it is in the last life of Jesus' life on earth. And you know all these facts. And you go out and think, well, great, I, I, I've got a bunch of new facts. And John's talking about belief in Jesus as this active thing that impacts your life. It's not just information. It affects us, how we live. It affects how we think, how we talk, how we act. This is what this faith, this belief is. It's not just some, some more information to add to the computer, to walk out the door and say, I punched in the clock, got some more information, see you later, have a great day and live any way you want. Because the gospel transforms people. This belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, works within us. And it causes us to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And that's the type of belief that John is talking about. Not just an assent to facts, but facts that affect the heart, that come forth in our words and in our actions and in our thoughts. That's what John is talking about. It's this active belief in the gospel. And John himself proclaimed, I'm sorry, Jesus himself proclaimed that he had purchased all Christians' freedom from sin's penalty. In John, Jesus says, I paid the price. The penalty that you owed. You sinners separated from God. No hope in your own strength. No, your good works are never going to outweigh your bad because your bad are still there. And they deserve punishment. And so I came and lived that perfect sinless life. And yet I went to the cross and was punished brutally for your sin. And if by God's grace alone, 
through faith alone in Christ alone. You've received that gift of salvation. Then the great exchange happened, and Jesus' righteousness, His perfect sinless life, is imputed. It's as if you had lived it, but you didn't. It's imputed to you, and your sin was imputed to Christ, and He paid the price for you. And so the penalty of sin was paid for by Jesus. Jesus made that promise in John, that when I die, your sin is paid for. But he made another promise. Not only is your sin, the penalty of your sin paid for, but the power of sin is broken over you. That's important for us to hear because that's the active ingredient in believing. Because he says, I paid the penalty. And then we know in God's word that when, and Jesus talked about it with his disciples at the Last Supper, we know that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within us. And what that means is that God enables us to be like Jesus. It's all great. What would Jesus do? We can know what Jesus would do, but if we don't have the ability to do it, it doesn't do us much good, does it? But what happens is that the Spirit of God dwells within all believers. Just, just again, that is always such a mystery to me. Because Jesus right now is seated on the right hand of the Father, and the temple is filled with His glory, And yet he is here right now. The living God is here. And if you're a believer, he dwells within you. And to say that we can't walk in holiness is a lie from the enemy. Because he dwells within us and he empowers us. And he has broken, he's paid the penalty and he's broken the power of sin over us. So by God's grace, we can walk as Christ would walk. And Jesus made those promises to us. He said, I have done this. And and the best way that I can describe it is this way, is that these promises that Jesus made are reflected to me best in the seven I am statements that are only found in the Gospel of John. They're only in John. Take a look. Here's the seven I am statements. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. The only hope. I am the light. I am the door. The door to eternal life. There is no other. I am it. I am the door. When you receive by faith the gift of salvation, you're eternally saved. I am the door. I'm the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. What powerful words. Because you have to think about what that means. What does it mean for you to be a sheep? What does the shepherd do for you? The good shepherd in this moment. You know, we turn to Psalm 23 and we think of some of the things that are laid out. I shall not want. I shall not want. Because he's my good shepherd. That he leads me beside still waters. To paths of righteousness. He's our guide. He leads us. He's not distant. Casting us aside and saying, good luck. Hope you figure it all out. And let me know how it turns out in the end. But rather he guides us. He leads us. Why? Because we're his sheep. He's the good shepherd. It's beyond just salvation. 
and I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Boy, isn't that easy to fear evil in today's world? I will fear no evil, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. For thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Fear no evil. Why? Because our God is sovereign, ruling and reigning even now. And I will not walk in fear. He prepares a table before me. God takes care of us. He takes care of his people. Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. That's what it means that you have a good shepherd. Do you realize that? It's not just salvation. It's daily provision, daily care by your good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. How can we be sure? How can we be sure that when we die, we'll get this new body, we'll be raised again and spend eternity in heaven? Because Jesus made you a promise. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's me. It's a promise based on who he is, not us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These are the reflections of the promises of God to you. That He is worthy to be praised and honored, to be believed in as the living God in the flesh, and to be trusted. And and you know what? Maybe you're like me. I find it easier to believe Jesus is God for my salvation than I do to believe Jesus is God on a daily level. Because I walk in so much anxiety and fear. You know, it's like we get caught up in all this life. You know, and I've I've said this before. I said it's easier to die for Jesus than to live for him. Right? Somebody walks up to you and says, deny Jesus or I'll shoot you. You say, pull the trigger. Right? But then our neighbor comes up to us and says, do you really believe in Jesus and we just don't say anything? Isn't that the way it is? And it seems like we can believe God for the great salvation that we have, but daily to deal with our lives and the struggles that we have, it seems like it's hard to really embrace the fact that he's the living God who wants to have an effect in our lives, in our families, our messed up families, with the screwed up things that happen in them. And the marriages that are broken, can God heal them? And we doubt God. He's the living God. He spoke everything out of nothing. You see what I mean by it's so easy to believe in Him for salvation, but to trust in Him as the living God moment by moment, it's so difficult. We read the news and we worry and we fear and we walk in anxiety. You see, worry and fear, and anxiety, and anger, and sin reveal a lack of trust in Jesus as our sovereign, sufficient God. We're not resting in Him. We're not finding our hope in Him. We're not believing that no matter what happens, He is sovereign over all things. And He can do miracles if He so chooses and he can heal and he can mend marriages and families and mend a broken world and broken people. And we doubt that. It's reflected in our fear so many times and our anxiety. That that's 
the God that John is portraying in his gospel. This living God who spoke everything out of nothing. And you matter to him. You matter to him. He is your shepherd. He is your shepherd. And as I've said, and he delights in you. And we struggle with that. We pull back and we cringe because we know us. And we say, how can he do that? And it just doesn't matter. The word of God says he does. So you either believe your feelings or you believe his word. And he delights over you. And he wants to provide for you. And he wants to break you free from that captivity that you have to whatever sin it might be or bondage. He delights in you and he wants to do those things. So I think maybe what we need to do is confess. Confess our unbelief and our lack in trust, lack of trust. And ask Jesus to empower us that we would trust him to be the sovereign God that he truly is. To be sovereign in our families, in our marriages, in our homes, in our nation, at work, with our neighbors. That he would be sovereign God and that he has it in his hands. And he is doing something that in the end will so glorify his name that men will stand back and worship him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's your God. That's the God who dwells within you, who delights in you. He delights to provide for you all your needs. He delights to guard you against the attacks of the enemy. He delights to deliver you from the attacks that you have struggled with your whole life. He delights. He delights to empower you to walk and be like Jesus. That's your God. That's your God. And that's why I say, Jesus is God from beginning. And he didn't stop being God when on earth. How could he? How could he? You ever think about that? So he's God from all eternity, and then he comes to earth and he's somehow not God? And then, oh yeah, and then he's, he, you know, then he becomes God again after he dies on the cross or raises from the dead or whatever people believe? No, he's always God. And that is where peace comes from. That he is God. He is ruling and he is reigning. And he said, I am. And that claim was backed up by the scripture that he fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies. Talked about this last week. Just eight of the prophecies, the chances of Jesus fulfilling eight of these prophecies were, you know, you, you get lost in the numbers, I said. And it's one times ten to the seventeenth power. And you go, oh yeah, oh, great math. I was terrible at math. Well, how about this one? It's the same thing as if a tornado goes ripping through a junkyard and leaves behind it a fully functioning, ready-to-fly 747 Boeing jet. Those were the chances that Jesus would fulfill. Just eight of the prophecies, not all 300. He is God. He is God. And his claim was backed up by the scripture he fulfilled, by the sinless life that he lived, by the miracles that he did that caused John, his closest friend, 
to say, this is God. This is who I'm writing about. God in the flesh. And it is proven by his resurrection. Proven by his resurrection. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile, is what the word of God says. If you didn't raise from the dead, it's futile. Forget it. Don't bother wasting your time in church. And even in human history, Jesus claimed that he is God, backed up by all of that. So I conclude with what I started. What is the main point? It's this. Believe in and trust Jesus because he was, he is, and he always will be sovereign God. And that's why his promises are absolutely sure. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you today acknowledging that you are God. You are seated on the right hand of the Father. And all the mysteries wrapped up in who you are, we ask you for the faith to believe. God, we confess our own sin that we embrace the truth of you being God and sovereign over all things in our salvation, but so many times we mistrust you. We don't believe on a daily basis for little things and big things. Forgive us, Lord. Cause us, Lord, to believe. Give us, give us the, the faith to believe, Lord. Give us the ability to walk in holiness, to honor you in our thought, words, and deeds. Lord, we're dependent upon you completely, but you're the living God. You spoke and everything was created. So we trust you, Lord, and we worship you this morning, and we thank you for so great a salvation that we can never even imagine at all. And I pray now that as our worship comes forward, that it would be a sweet incense unto you, Lord, proclaiming, great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue worship.